They tell the story in London, England, about a young man named Francis. And it's a story that begins with great promise and a lot of hope, and it ends in a surprising way. Francis was the top of his class growing up, and so it was no surprise that he enrolled in medical school. His dad, after all, was a doctor that was very well connected in English society, and everyone just kind of assumed that Francis was going to follow in his father's footsteps. But not long after being in med school, he contacted his dad to let him know that he was dropping out. He was going to move to London and pursue life as a writer. And shortly after arriving in London, Francis ran into a number of medical issues and challenges, and ironically, due to poor medical treatment, he was prescribed and then became addicted to opium. And that addiction destroyed his life. Francis was living on the streets, he was sleeping on the banks of the rivers Thames, doing anything he possibly could just to survive. And the story of Francis is pretty similar to our own story of humanity. We've been in this big series called Grasping God's Big Story. We want to understand what is the big story of Scripture. And the story begins with great promise and a lot of hope for us. We were created in the image of our heavenly Father. But then we too went our own way. We went our own way, and as we went our own way, we also became addicted. We became addicted to sin. And that addiction has destroyed our lives. And so we're doing anything we possibly can as humanity just to survive. We're not enjoying the thriving life that our Father wanted for us. And in this season of the story that we're going through, we find out what God has done to save us from ourselves, to bring us back, to to give us a hope and a future, and, and, and what that answer to the problem is. Last weekend, we talked that in order to find and to follow the real Jesus, that religion actually isn't a helpful approach, that religion fails us in being able to find and follow the real Jesus, and that what we need is not religion, we need something called regeneration, just a theology term. I mean, we need new life, and that only comes from the real Jesus. So last weekend, we left off by saying, well, how do we find that real Jesus? And that's where we pick up today. Where do we find the real Jesus? Jesus. And what the Apostle Paul is going to explain to us today is that before we can find and then follow the real Jesus, we have to understand the real problem. Because Jesus offers to us a solution. But if we don't know the problem, then we're not looking for the solution. So what is the real problem that we are dealing with? And to explain that to us, Paul writes Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 3. If you're joining us online, we are grateful that you're there. I want you to open a Bible up as well. And if you're here in this room and you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have a Bible that we provide for you, and you can find Romans 3 on page 1711. Romans chapter 3. We're going to begin today in verse 9. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us about what our problem is. He says this, Paul writes, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. 
And this picks up where we left off last weekend by saying all religious approaches, all worldviews, all struggle with the same thing, and it's that we don't even keep our own rules, that none of us can keep the rules, that all of us do things that we know are wrong, that we are all under the power of sin. And so that's, that's what Paul is saying. Our problem is sin. But when he says that we're under the power of sin, what oftentimes we fail to understand is just how significant a problem sin is for us. There oftentimes we view sin as those wrong things that we do, and what Paul is going to be trying to help us understand is actually our problem with sin is so much deeper, it is so much more pervasive, and it's so much more complicated than we ever realized. And it's important for us to understand that because, again, if we don't understand the problem, we're never going to find the real Jesus who offers to us a solution. So just, just how deep and wide is this problem of sin? Well, Paul continues. Here's what he says in verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually not writing his own words, he's actually quoting from the Hebrew scriptures. That's what we call the Old Testament. And what Paul is doing is he's doing a tactic that's called pearl stringing. The, the idea is that there are these pearls of truth all throughout scripture. And people in Paul's day would go and they would hunt through the scriptures to find these, these pearls of truth. And just like if you were searching for a pearl out in the water, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. But when you find it, you want to hold on to it because this is the treasure that you've been looking for. And then they would take a number of those different pearls and they would string them together. You know, just like you'd string together pearls to create a necklace, you string together these truths throughout Scripture to explain or to understand a larger theological point that Scripture is trying to get us to understand. And so for the people in Paul's day, many of them were very familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Many of them had it memorized. And so when he's pearl stringing and he's quoting all of these references from the Old Testament, people are hearing this and they're remembering all of these references and, and they know the context in which Paul is referring to. Now for those of us who may not be as familiar with some of those scriptures, let me just briefly walk through with you all of these different pearls that Paul gives to us because what he's saying is he's saying, here, if you understand the context of these references, here's who's under the power of sin. Here's, here's, here's the people that, that struggle with sin. So here's what Paul does is he starts in verse 10, and verse 10 through 12, he's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And the context of those psalms is the people who are under sin are the fools who say there is no God. Those who say in their heart there is no God. That's the, that's the context there. He goes on to say this, though, in verse 13, he's quoting Psalm 5 and Psalm 140, who's saying the people who are under sin are violent evildoers, those who are enemies of God's people. And then he goes on. Uh, in verse 14, he quotes from Psalm 10 to say, it's wicked people. And then he goes on, actually, in verse 18 to quote another psalm, Psalm 36, sinful and wicked people. 
Now, so far, there's no surprises here. We would expect that those who are behaving badly are those who are under sin. But he also quotes from not just some of the Psalms, but Isaiah. And specifically in verse 17, he references a passage in the prophet Isaiah where Isaiah is speaking to God's own people. And he's saying, you who have the law, you who know God, you are just as guilty and you do all the same things as all of those evil, wicked people. And then Paul also says, just to make sure we didn't leave anybody out, actually everybody is under the power of sin. But if we grab this pearl right here, this one from Ecclesiastes, we begin to understand just how deep this issue of sin really is. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, one of the wisest people to ever live. And he makes this profound commentary on humanity. Solomon says, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right, and never sins. And on the surface, we're like, okay, we got it. Like, we've been talking about that last weekend and this weekend. Like, all of us are guilty of doing things that are wrong. There's no one who's exempt from that. All of us are sinners. Got it. And that's true on the surface, but what Solomon is saying here and what Paul is saying here, what Scripture is saying here, is that there actually is more to sin than just doing wrong. Because Solomon says, there's no one on earth who does what is right. It's a whole nother level. The question is, do we believe that? Is that true? Is it true that there's no one on earth who does what is right? Because don't we see people who do what's right all the time? I mean, there's been situations where we've done what's right, right? I mean, even people who don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus, who aren't aren't followers, don't we see them do right sometimes? So how can Scripture say that there's no one on earth who even does what is right? Well, it's because the issue of sin again, runs far deeper than we realize. Here's what sin is. Sin, it just means that God has set a standard and that we failed to hit it. The literal definition of sin is missing the mark. So God said, here's the standard, we've come up short. So clearly that happens when we we do the wrong things, but what scripture is saying is that failing to even do the right things means that we sin. So James, in the New Testament, who's the half-brother of Jesus, he agrees with what Solomon's saying. Here's what he says about sin. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. That's less comfortable to read, isn't it? Because how many times every day do we see something good that we should do or we ought to do or we think we could do and we don't do it? And there's times that we're we're seeing something at work and we're like, hey, somebody should help that person. Or a kid say something, and it's like, somebody should say something, right? Or you're like, I should probably call my mom and see if she needs some help. Or, you know, maybe, maybe I should reach out to my neighbor. I know they're going through a hard time. Or, you know, maybe I should do this thing. Maybe I should serve. Maybe I should volunteer. Maybe I should help this person. We, we see all of these good things at times, and we don't do them. And James is saying, if that's ever been true of you, that you're, you're sinning. And once you start looking for this in your life, I'm, I have to warn you, you start to realize how pervasive this is. Actually, this verse is one of the reasons that I will no longer tell people, I'll pray for you. Which sounds weird to say as a pastor. But I don't say that to people anymore. And it's because I've been convicted about something. Several years ago, I found that I was just using that phrase. It's just easy to say. 
You know, so somebody would come to me and they'd be telling me what's going on in their life and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Hey, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be praying for you. And, and then when I said it, I, I meant it. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, if I thought to pray for him, I would. And, 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 I, and I probably wanted to pray for him and I knew that prayer would be helpful for that person. But if I didn't write it down, this is just my life, it just doesn't happen. And so what would, what would happen occasionally is I'd run back into that person and I would see them and I was like, I was supposed to pray for them. And then like quick in the moment, I'm like trying to pray for them in my mind, right? Or worse, they'd come up to me and they'd be like, Kyle, I just got to let you know, things are so much better. Thanks for praying. <laughs> you bet, you know? So I was like, I can't, I can't use that phrase anymore unless I know I'm going to follow through. So here's what it is now. If somebody comes to me and they, they ask for prayer, I will do it right then. Or what I'll do is I'll write it down. So if I ever tell you I'm praying for you, you can be confident that either A, I already have been praying for you, or that I've written you down on my prayer list. And if I haven't done those things, I'll have a different conversation with you, but I'm not going to say that to you. Here's why. Because I don't want to be guilty of this sin. And the reason I'm telling you that is just to say, do you see how deep and wide this runs? And if any of you are like, now hold on a minute, this just feels a little legalistic to me, right? Like, I mean, just failing to remember to pray for somebody, Kyle, surely that's not sinful. But let's go a little bit deeper. Why, why was I telling people that I was going to pray for them? I was telling them that because I'm trying to meet them in the moment. I'm trying to tell them that I'm going to pray for them because I know they're in need, and I want, to, I want to do something. I feel obligated to try to show up and, and be a good pastor in that moment. I feel like that's the right thing to say. And in that moment, if we're just being really honest, it probably has a lot more to do about me trying to show up to that moment than about really being concerned about them. I say this is the pervasiveness of sin. So sin's not only doing the wrong things, sometimes sin is not doing the right things. But folks, I'd say it gets even more uncomfortable. Because sometimes sin is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And those are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And the image that Jesus describes there is, is almost ridiculous. I mean, it would be like if, if when we were passing the offering plates, uh, one of you, when you received the plate, you stood up and you just announced to the whole congregation that you were here to make a contribution, right? I mean, it's just like, none of us would do that, right? So we, we could look at that and be like, okay, well, you know, th those words of Jesus don't apply. But again, let, let's focus on our heart condition. Don't we often do the same thing? Maybe not with giving financially, but how about giving of our time? Have any of us ever volunteered for an organization? Or, or maybe you've served somebody or, or you saw somebody at your workplace or one of your family members who was in need and you went out of your way to help them and then that person responded in a way that you felt like they don't, they don't get it, right? Like they didn't say thank you 
or they didn't acknowledge you, or maybe they even seemed entitled, that, that, that like you were supposed to be doing this, and they never appreciated what you were doing to serve. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. And when that happens, how do we react? Oftentimes, I'm offended by that. I'm like, man, I'm here to help you. Like, why are you treating me this way? Or how many of us have stopped volunteering for an organization because we felt like they didn't properly appreciate us? Now, if that's true, then here's the question, who were we really serving? If they were really in need and we were trying to help meet a need, were we really doing it for them or were we doing it sort of for them but also sort of for us? If we were doing it to really honor God, what do we care about how they respond? So the fact that we, we pay attention to those things means that there, there's a depth here of an issue. And our standard when it comes to serving others is Jesus. Well, how did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus serve us? When, when he went to the cross, he went to the cross to take on the consequences for our sin. The, the consequences of sin is death. So Jesus went and died a death that you and I deserved to die, but he did it so we wouldn't have to do it. So that we could then receive the benefit of a restored relationship with God. So he served us in that. And, and when Jesus was hanging on the cross, do you think anybody came up to him and was like, hey, I, I, just, I, I know you're right in the middle of this, but I just thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate this. Like, no one did that. And they didn't do it in part because no one understood what Jesus was doing at that moment. It wasn't until after his resurrection from the dead that people began to realize, oh my goodness, there was something much more that was going on here. But Jesus did not come to do that so that we would just give him praise. Jesus did that because he was honoring his Father in heaven, and he did it, listen, because he loved you and me. And he wanted us to have the gift of salvation and the promise of new life, whether we realized it or not. If that's our standard, I just, I just got to tell you, when it comes to serving, I don't measure up. Told you it was going to be uncomfortable. This problem with sin runs really deep. So just to summarize, here's what sin is according to scripture. Sin's doing the wrong things. Sin's not doing the right things. And sin is also doing the right things but for the wrong reasons. And what's common about all of this is sin is about the self. Right? The reason that you and I do the wrong things is because we believe that those wrong things will make us happy. And we trust our own instincts more than we trust God's word. That's, that's, why, that's why we sin. The reason that we don't do right things is because we don't believe it's worth our time. We think that we're too busy or we have more important things to do or it's, it's not worth our effort. Or the reason that we do the right things but for the wrong reasons is because we are trying to make ourselves feel good. We're trying to make ourselves look better or we're trying to convince God that we're in a better situation. What's common in all of that is the focus is on us. And that's the pervasive problem of sin. So what's the solution? Well, thankfully, Paul gets into that for us. He says this in verse 18. Paul writes, he says, now we know that what, uh, he says, uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and then here's the key phrase, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. What Paul is telling us here is the solution to this pervasive problem of sin is simply this. It is that we are supposed to fear God and be silent. So we're fearing God and being silent. That idea of fear God doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. It doesn't mean that we're worried that he's going to come and punish us because of our sinfulness or that God's coming to get us. Fear of God just means respect for who God is. It's an awareness of who God is. And it's an awareness of who God is in contrast to who we are. And when you have a right view of God, listen, here's what happens. We become, spiritually speaking, silent. Because we don't have much to say in light of a holy God. There's a powerful story in the Old Testament about this by a man named Job. Job had a whole series of tragic events that occurred in his life and he was in just a miserable moment and so a bunch of his friends run to his aid to try to comfort him and try to help him out and no sooner than they get there than they start telling Job that because they have a very simplistic view of God that actually the reason that he's going through all of these hardships is it must be because God is somehow punishing Job for some wrong thing that he's done. And Job is insistent, I haven't done any of those things. I I haven't committed anything that's wrong. And there's this back and forth between them. And then Job starts complaining to God, and he's demanding, God, answer me. God, you have to justify me. God, you have to to prove to these people that I haven't done this. And God, why won't you show up? And he's just, there's all this noise. For 37 chapters of the book of Job, there's speeches and back and forth between Job and his friends and, and calling out to God. And finally, in verse 38, God speaks. And when God speaks, he comes to Job and he just says, okay, Job, you've been asking all these questions of me, my turn, I'm going to ask you a few questions. And God never answers Job's questions directly. He just reframes the conversation. He says, Job, where were you when I I made the earth? Hey, hey Job, if if you believe that you can question me, let me me just ask you this, Have, have you walked on the tops of the mountains? Have you been in the depths of the sea? Hey, hey Job, are you the one who declared that the ocean will come this far and no further? Hey, Job, are you aware when when the animals in the wilderness give birth? Job, are you the one that provides food for them? Job, are you the one that decides when it's going to rain and when it's not? Job, do the lightning bolts report to you? And in this beautiful, poetic language, God just describes who he is. And and as Job hears who God is, he has a right view of God. He stops focusing on himself, and he starts focusing on God. And here's his response. Job says to God, I have spoken. I will speak no more. I literally, I put my hand over my mouth. Because once we understand who God is, we, we stop, spiritually speaking, we stop talking. We're silenced. And see, that's a better response, because here's what tends to happen. We view our sinfulness, and we want to go one of two ways. And they're both still focused on the self. We hear about our sinfulness, and we want to defend ourselves. We want to say, God, no, no, I'm really not that bad. Like, I'm really not that bad. I've actually done a lot of good things. Look, I'm getting better. I'm making progress. I'm improving. I'm better than this person. Like, we want to justify ourselves to God, to others, to ourselves. But it's still focused on me. But there's an equally difficult, still sinful, still self-focused response that's all about just loathing myself. Oh my gosh, I'm so bad. 
I can't believe how sinful I am. I can't believe how awful I am. And it's like somehow we just want to heap shame and guilt upon ourselves. And there's this idea that if we can just feel bad enough about ourselves, that maybe God will recognize how awful we feel from ourselves, and maybe then he'll give us mercy because we feel so bad about ourselves. But the focus is still on us. And in the midst of, of our sinfulness, here's the proper response. It is to just be quiet. Not to defend, not to loathe, but just to agree with God that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And here's our fear about doing that. Our fear about doing that is that in the midst of that, we're going to be exposed. What's going to happen? How are we going to find the real Jesus if we are silent spiritually? And, and here's the answer. We aren't. You don't find the real Jesus. He finds you. And when we finally get quiet enough to stop talking about ourselves and focusing on ourselves, it's in that moment that we realize that the real Jesus has been coming for you the whole time. Just like Francis. See, Francis was a powerful writer. And he had sent in some writings to a publication before his addiction really hit. And even in the midst of it, he was trying to do some writings. And a publisher found those writings. And that publisher came looking for Francis. And he found him there on the streets. He found him in, in the midst of his despair. And he and his wife brought Francis into their home and they took care of him. And they got him into a rehab facility to help fight off that addiction. And they introduced him to the real Jesus. And Francis Thompson in 1890, went on to write one of the most powerful poems in the English language called The Hound of Heaven. And in that poem, Francis describes his own life as running from God, focused on himself, trying to find worth, trying to find meaning, trying to find value, and in the midst of his desperation, became utterly broken, and it was there when he finally stopped his running, that he realized that Jesus had been pursuing him his whole life. Just like a hound dog would pursue their prey, which in the English culture is, is very appropriate. See, when you're finally silent enough, you realize that the real Jesus has been coming for you this whole time. Not to pay you back but to bring you back. Because in our silence, here's what we learn. The real Jesus loves the real you. Not the fake you, not the mask you, not the religious you, not the you who's getting yourself better, not the you who's working on you, not the you who does you, the real you. Jesus loves the real broken Messed up, incomplete, not good enough, insecure, unable to ever do the right thing, you. That's why he's been pursuing you your whole life. And he's been pursuing you because he does not want you to remain in your sin anymore. He wants to give to you what only he can offer to you, and that is his spirit to transform your life. So the question is, well, how do we receive that? 
And how we receive it is that posture of humble silence before God to recognize that we need what only Jesus can offer to us, to realize that we haven't found him, he has found us, and we simply invite him in. Here at Wooddale Church, we say that that, that's the moment of saying yes to Jesus. And in just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to say yes. What you're saying yes to is you're saying yes to stop focusing on yourself. What you're saying yes to is to say, I'm saying yes to to not being about my sin anymore. I'm, I'm not being about my effort anymore. What I'm saying yes to is I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting in God. I'm trusting in what Christ has done for me. That his death on the cross covers over my sin and that because he was risen from the grave, he now offers to me new life through his Holy Spirit. And that spirit will change us and transform us, and it will make us every single day more and more like Jesus. And that is our hope. And that's what God offers to us through his son, Jesus, that we can get nowhere else. That is the real Jesus who loves the real you. So if you're here today, and you've been running from God. It's time to let Jesus find you. If you're here today, and maybe years ago you accepted him, but, but then life got busy, and right now you're no, you're, your life is noisy. It's full of spiritual noise because you're trying to justify yourself. You're trying to work it yourself. What, what is this? This is the moment for you to come back to Jesus, to recommit your life to him, to invite him to say yes to him again and to receive the grace and the forgiveness that he so freely offers to you and to me. It's time to realize that the real Jesus loves the real you. If you'd like to receive that gift, what I'm going to do for us in just a moment is I'm going to lead us through a prayer. I'll I'll say it out loud. I just want to invite you to pray silently where you're at if you're ready for that moment. The words don't matter as much as the heart condition. And here's what I want you to know. God knows your heart. It goes something like this. Would you bow your head with me? Father God, I agree with you that I am a sinful person. I acknowledge that even my own efforts to try to get better come up short. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for my sins. And I believe that Jesus was risen to life three days later. Because of that, I believe that Jesus is offering to me your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit will transform my life and give to me what I could never do on my own. I accept this gift that you are giving to me. I put my faith and my trust no longer in myself, but in Jesus. And I promise, with your help, to follow Jesus the rest of my life. Amen.